Well, Holy Spirit, I thank you for your presence here uh, in this place. And I ask that uh, now, Lord, you would work through your word, uh, through my words, and in our hearts. Lord, come and empower them to change us and to shape us into the disciples you have called us to be. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, good morning uh, and welcome, including you, all of you watching online in the community center. Uh, it's really an honor to get to share with you this morning. Uh, as Rich said, my name is Ryan Beatty, and uh, I work with uh, young adult ministries here at First Presbyterian Church, which is a relatively new uh, ministry area. I get to work with Scott Dudley and a team of other uh, young adult volunteers in their 20s and 30s. And I encourage you, look online, contact me directly if you'd like to find out more what we're doing. Well, I want to start this morning by answering a question that's probably on the minds of many of you after hearing the uh, passage just read. Who assigned this poor guy Lamentations 3 for his first sermon <laughs> at First Pres? That's actually a picture of me, a little airbrushed, after uh, getting my assignment. No, it's not true. I actually picked this passage myself. I can only take responsibility. Uh, but it is my hope that by the end, you'll come away feeling hopeful about your relationship with God and the freedom he gives us as his children to come to him uh, and share about the deepest stuff of life. In my house, one of my favorite routines is that each night at dinner, when we sit down with our kids, uh, my wife Christy and I, we share our highs and our lows. And we feel like this is a chance for us to draw our kids out a bit and hear about both the good and the bad of their day. Now, I could talk about the value of this from a uh, standpoint of emotional intelligence and raising emotionally intelligent children, but the reality is, with a three-year-old and a five-year-old, it's just pretty entertaining. <laughs> so, and uh, our five-year-old, he tends to stay within the bounds of reality pretty well, but our three-year-old little girl, uh, she's a little more imaginative especially her lows lately, which have involved uh, several bee stings on her head and in her eyeballs in places uh, we've never been and that I've never heard of. <laughs> and you know, we love to hear them share about their highs, um, those things that made them happy or glad, what made them feel good about themselves. And these are the, usually the easier ones for us all to come up with. But honestly, we lean in a little closer and listen more carefully when we hear what made them feel mad or sad or bad that day. Because it's in hearing their lows where we have a chance to really learn from them about who they are and what has impacted them during the day. I was struck by this last week when Rich shared a story in his sermon that ended uh, with one person saying to the other, how can you love me if you don't know what hurts me? And asking our kids to share their lows, we are seeking to know them and love them more fully. Well, one high that I will be sharing at our dinner table about a month from now is I'll just have finished my final requirement for my Master of Divinity degree from Fuller Seminary. Basically, through a uh, startling intellect, I managed to stretch a three-year degree out over 10 years. Now, <laughs> I know you're impressed, because not everybody can say they've done that, uh, but finally, after a decade, uh, I will be done with my graduate education. And you'd think, having spent that much time studying theology, church history, ancient languages in the Bible, I'd qualify as at least a mediocre theologian. But the reality is, I'm not a true academic and may never be. In fact, one of the core tenets of my theology is that Jesus didn't die so we could have good theology. I tend to focus on theology in as much as it informs me and my work with people. If what I study and read about God's creation doesn't translate into meaningful help, 
for the day-to-day -day life of living out the gospel of Jesus and introducing people to his kingdom, I struggle to have time for it. Now, having said that, I do have this short list of ideas about God. I call it my I know that I know that I know list. And it's those beliefs that through the combination of studies and personal experience have become core to who I am and how I approach God and his creation. And it's a lot of what informs me in my work with young adults here at First Prez. And if you said to me, Beatty, what's one thing that you know that you know that you know is true about God? I would say this. God is passionate about being in a real, active relationship with you, me, and the rest of his creation. And it's one of the reasons, primary reasons I've become a Christian, a Christ follower in this world. This radical notion that the divine, all-powerful creator of the universe wants to be in a real, active relationship with me and with you. In John 17, Jesus says this, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For many in the church, the gospel has been reduced to a transaction or an arrangement we've made with God that guarantees we get into heaven when we die. But what Jesus says here is that the good news he's bringing about eternal life begins with knowing the one real God and his son now. When Jesus says eternal life is knowing God, he's not talking about an intellectual knowing, like I know about something, a, a head knowledge. But he's talking about an intimate, personal, interactive relationship with a living God. And this is good news now. That God intends for our relationship with him to be alive and meaningful in our day-to-day -day lives. Because of this, in the same way that I care about the good and bad that my kids experience each day, so God does for each of us. Which gets to the heart of what I want to talk about today. Can we, in a sense, bring our lows to God? Those very real things that cause us to suffer and be angry, even angry with God. Now, what if I stood up at church or pulled a group of you aside one day and said, man, God is after me. You know, I, I do what he asks of me, I, I go where he says go, I, I say what he asks me to say, but it's like he's mad at me, and every day brings me nothing but pain. It literally feels like he's breaking every bone in my body. And he once put me in a place so dark, I might as well have been dead. I literally feel like a target. He shoots full of arrows, and not just in my arm or my foot, but in my vital organs. Because of God, I can't remember what it feels like to be happy, and it's all I can think about. Well, before excusing yourself away from that awkward conversation, how would you respond? Beatty, you can't talk that way at God, he, about God. He wouldn't do that to you. Or, I'm sorry you're going through a tough time, but you shouldn't talk that way about, about God. It's not right. Now, what if I said that God invites that level of honesty from us? Again, God is passionate about being in a real, active relationship with you, me, and the rest of his creation. And that means making space for us to be honest with him about the, how the tough things of life make us feel, even if they bring anger. Now, what I said about God uh, being after me and mad at me are essentially a paraphrase of the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah was a young prophet who foretold the destruction of the nation of Judah 600 years before Jesus lived. God pronounced judgment on Judah's leaders and their nation for their unwillingness to turn back to God. Essentially, Judah experienced horrific suffering at the hands of the Babylonian army, 
And this becomes known in history as the Babylonian captivity, as thousands of Jewish people were forcibly moved from their lands to Babylon. Now, not surprisingly, the leaders of Judah uh, didn't appreciate Jeremiah's message that judgment was coming, and they didn't treat him very well in response. Several times he's beaten, whipped, and gets thrown into jail. One time he's lowered down into a dark cistern or well for several days. In other words, just as Jeremiah's people are about to face an exile, an exile from their land, an exile from their loved ones, even exile from their very lives. Jeremiah endures a miserable time of personal exile. And though I'm sure he recognizes that God's not the one lowering him down into wells or beating him with whips, he lets God know how it makes him feel, including that he's angry about it, angry that God would allow it. In the first part of this chapter, which we won't read in its entirety, Jeremiah begins by describing himself as, quote, one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone, he turns his hand again and again all day long. Jeremiah then spends the next 17 verses describing how awful it's been, and towards the end says this, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped from the Lord. Gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for. This is one of the most haunting verses in all scripture for me. What is Jeremiah doing here? And can God really be pleased to have his prophet talking this way about him? Well, for the rest of our time together, I want to talk about what Jeremiah is doing in this passage and encourage us to learn a very practical spiritual exercise from it. And then I want, to end, I want to zero in on why I think Jeremiah is able to write these words and hold on to hope in the midst of such anger and pain. What we see here is Jeremiah giving his lament before God. And he's not just ranting or complaining about what's happening to him, but he's approaching God using a method familiar in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, for how to talk to God about one's suffering. Remember, God is passionate about being in a real, active relationship with each of us. And he has given lament as a way to be real with him, a way to express honestly the things that even make us mad in our relationship with God. In our house, we set the table and invite our kids to share as part of a meal. How do we bring our lament to God? First, we can address God directly. Jeremiah shows us that we can be honest and direct God, the Lord honestly reminding him that he is a God who both sees and knows our condition. Jeremiah knew that beyond simply seeing his condition, God understood it intimately. Then, offer your complaint to God. Jeremiah said, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. We can describe the pain and stress we feel, the grief over what's been lost. Try naming your pain and what you have lost through your suffering. Next, petition him. God invites us to ask him for help. What is it that we desire him to do? And if the miracle of relief fully does not come, what would help living in your situation? Then tell God what his motivation should be for acting on your behalf. Reflect on how you've been faithful to God's call in your life. And also be prepared to hear from the Lord areas of needed repentance. Express confidence or trust in God. You might say, God, you have healed and freed so many before. You sent Jesus to die for me. I will trust in you. Then vow and give thanks and praise. 
How has your sense of thankfulness changed as a result of your suffering? Maybe you can relate to this. I know in my life, whenever I go through difficult times, I find my priorities get straightened out. Usually I find myself thankful, once again, for my wife and kids and the people who care about me. Write a statement of thanks and praise specific to your situation. And finally, be sure to take time to listen for a response from God after offering your lament. There will be times in prayer when you will hear from him. Now, it may not be a full explanation for why you're going through a tough time, but in my experience, I found God will show me what it is he's teaching me through those experiences, and this gives me a greater sense of peace, that God is with me even in the midst of tough times. I remember talking to a friend who's now a, a pastor of a church in Seattle about his experience battling deep depression years ago, and I asked him at the end of our conversation, what did you learn about God through that experience? And he paused and said, I learned he was better than I thought he was. I believe God has proven himself worthy to be trusted with the most painful things in our lives, those things that can cause deep bitterness and anger. Because God desires to have a real, active relationship with each of us, we can use this form of prayer that was used by Jeremiah and others like David in the Psalms to express ourselves fully to him. Now, I want to acknowledge that for many of you here, hopefully the vast majority, this message may not feel applicable for where you're at today because you're not in a difficult situation. So you can think of this as one of the chapters in your worst case scenario handbook. Think of it as the worst case spiritual scenario survival handbook. You know, that little book that you've picked up on someone's coffee table or selected bathroom readings. I mean, you don't ever really think you're going to need to know how to escape from quicksand or punch an alligator in the nose to get him to go away or jump from a building into a dumpster safely. But don't you feel just a little better prepared for facing Bellevue next week, having read those chapters? Now, for others of you, you do understand and can relate to the emotions expressed by Jeremiah because of the circumstances of your life or the life of someone close to you. And for you, I encourage you to try this form of prayer as an exercise of faith that God will meet you where you're at. Because I think like all parents, God longs for his children to come to him when they're hurting. When I was a student at the University of Washington, I attended a small charismatic church in Seattle. And during worship one week, I felt God speak to me. As the songs were playing, I began to see images of my life, like snapshots in front of my mind. And each time an image would move to the front, I sensed God say, trust me with this, I've provided. Up would come a picture of my education, trust me, I've provided. Up would come a picture of my job and my future financial security, trust me, I've provided. And soon it was like my whole life was speeding by in front of me on slides, advancing faster and faster. And every so often, I'd sense from God, I want it all, trust me, I've provided. Until finally, there was nothing left but me, a still image of myself standing there before God with nothing but my life. And I clearly sensed God challenge me, saying, trust me with that, too. And I resisted thinking, there's nothing left. Surely I get to keep at least this, the very fact that I'm alive, my breath. And I sensed God say, don't you know, even if you were to suffer and lose everything, even to the point of death, it's okay, I have provided. And I believe God was telling me that it was safe to come to him with everything I have, everything I am, because he has provided. Now, Jeremiah begins the second half of his lament with what has become one of the most famous expressions in all of Christian worship. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The young prophet moves from gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for to two verses later, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. How? How is this prophet who has suffered so much able to express this kind of affection to the God he was just venting to? Is this simply thin religious rhetoric? Is he saying what he thinks should be said rather than what he actually feels? Now, I don't think so. I mean, this kid just finished describing God as a wild bear waiting to devour him on a path. I don't think Jeremiah is struggling with honesty before God. So how is he able to get there? Let me share uh, something personally as we work our way to the answer. This past year has been uh, a fine one for me and my wife and kids, but there have been some very uh, painful and difficult circumstances involving death and broken relationships in the lives of people close to us. The kinds of things that can bring anger at the world, even anger at God. And I was reflecting this past Easter about how God has provided even unto death and the passage in Hebrews where it says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. What was it that Christ saw on the other side of the cross that allowed him to face and endure the suffering and shame of the cross? I think it's similar to what Jeremiah felt as he arrived at the place of writing that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's a truth that Jeremiah believed, a truth that Jesus knew, and that Paul knew when he wrote, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. And I think it's what God was trying to tell me as a young college student just beginning to take his faith seriously. That regardless of what the world brings, even suffering to the point of death, we can trust that God will ultimately provide. As a part of this reflection at Easter, I wrote something called Love Wins. I believe love wins. Love goes toe-to-toe with the worst in and around us, climbs down in the grave next to us, and wins. Love looks karma straight in the eye and says, I'll do you one better. Love wins. Love penetrates the marrow, acknowledges the abnormalities in the DNA, and wins. Love trumps power. Love circles the bullet, acknowledges its devastation, and wins. Love confronts evil, tickles its chin, and wins. Love binds, soothes, cures, erases, keeps a short memory, tastes the hurt, and wins. Love endures, feels the breaking, watches in horror, and wins. Love knows its place and refuses to stay there. Love turns an immovable stone into a marble, rolls it around in the bloodied soil, and wins. Love tries to tell you, shakes its head at your betrayal, and wins. Love sees the end of the world, smiles, and wins. Love is murdered and decides how long to stay that way. Love is swallowed up by death and self-regurgitates as grace. Love knows violence and wins. If love is a liar, I am a fool, but I believe love wins. Regardless of what the Lord allows him to endure, Jeremiah knows that ultimately God wins and is able to coin that phrase, great is thy faithfulness. And he knows that one day, either in this life or the next, God will deliver him. And this makes God trustworthy, one we can go to directly with our anger and bitterness over the things we suffer through in this life. And so I want to encourage you to be real. Be real with the one who already sees and knows your suffering and has provided, even into death. 
And I pray that you will be able to join with an angry young prophet who suffered so much but still wrote, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Amen.